Well, evening, everyone. My name's Liam, uh, one of the pastors here. It's joy to be with you. Let's open up our Bibles again to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And it'll be really helpful if you've got it open in front of you to follow along uh, as we track through it. But let's, uh, as we come to God's Word, let's uh, bow together again and let's pray. Our Father, in the book of Isaiah, we read that as the rain and snow come from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, uh, so is your word that goes out from your mouth. It does not return to you empty, but accomplishes what you desire and achieves the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, we see from your word that this purpose is glory. Glory given to you. Praise from all creation. And our prayer uh, this night is that you would help us as we consider this passage to give you glory and honor for you are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you are uh, too young to remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, but uh, it is an absolute classic. Uh, in that movie, the Ark is a religious relic from Israel's past, and it's sought by the Nazis because it held a mighty mystical power that would help them take over the whole world. Now, that's why Marcus Brody, Indiana Jones' friend, pleads with Jones to go out and find it first because an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. Well, so they thought. Because when they finally got their hands in the ark and opened it, its mighty mystical power didn't really come under their control. It kind of blitzed them with these lightning bolts and made their faces melt. So, uh, uh, a bit of an anticlimax for them, but great watching. It was a PG as well, wow. But it's a 10 years link, right? But uh, the army of Israel make the very same mistake in 1 Samuel 4 with this ark. Israel, the keepers of this, if you like, a God-given box called the Ark of the Covenant, think that if their army just carries this box around with them, they will be invincible. They'll not lose any of their battles. But in thinking that, as they do this, they make two major mistakes in 1 Samuel 4. And if we're not careful... Uh, we can make the same mistakes today. But God teaches them and us two very important lessons. What are they? Well, let's walk through the passage and find out. And here is the first one in verses 1 to 11. You cannot use God. That's point one. You cannot use God. Though Israel did use God. That's what we see in the passage. Israel thought they could use him anyway. In verses 1 and 2... Uh, they tell us that the Israelites fought against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines will feature quite a bit in this book. We'll look at them a little bit later on, maybe next week anyway. Um, they're basically Israel's enemy, and they win the first of two battles in this uh, passage here. And then in verse 3, you've got the leaders of Israel and the army back at camp, and the leaders are like football pundits. They're analyzing their defeat. What went wrong, they say. Verse 3, they're asking the right question. Look with me. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Now, in, in a sense, they should have known the answer to that question straight away. 
Because the answer to that question was actually in their Bibles. It was in Leviticus chapter 26 in verses 14 to 17, which says, if, and God's speaking here, if you will not listen to me and carry out these commands, in other words, the commands of God's law, I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. So Israel's pundits should have thought, defeat, we must not be listening to God. Uh, We must be rebellious. We need to go to Shiloh and seek atonement, seek forgiveness of sins, but they definitely don't do that. The answer to their own question was, silly us, we forgot to bring God. And that's why they give this instruction. Instead, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Now, if you are new to the Bible, when you hear the word Ark, you probably think boat, but it's not boat, it's a box here. Um, You find it sourced in Exodus 25. It is an ornate gold-plated box commissioned by God himself, intended to really remind his people of, of more than this, but basically three things. His presence, uh, he went with this box in power. Uh, his promise, it contained the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, Israel's copy of the terms of this covenant relationship that they've got with God, if you like. And thirdly, his provision, Uh, His general provision was symbolized in a jar of manna that was contained in this box, and also spiritual, his spiritual provision symbolized by Aaron's staff. It's a long story, but we can dig around in that another time if you want to. And I guess if you know how this ark has been used in the past, you might think, well, we might forgive Israel for thinking that let's get the box and then we'll win our wars. Because when you think back to Joshua 3, how did Israel cross the Jordan? Well, the ark went first. In Jericho Jericho 6, that's not your book of the Bible, by the way. Uh, Joshua 6, which features most in the the defeat of uh, Jericho, it is the ark of the covenant. You get where I'm going with it, good. Um, But there's nothing spiritual or honorable in the slightest about Israel bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle here. It's depicted and relayed for us this story in a way that shows that they're just using God. Um, In my study this week, I found one commentator who said, they treat God like a waiter in a restaurant. And I think this is a helpful illustration. I mean, imagine yourself, you're out for dinner with some friends, you're sitting at the table, you're having some fun. Where's the waiter? Uh, The waiter is around because you want them around, but you don't want them sitting at the table with you, joining in your chat. That would be a little bit weird. Um, No, you only want them around when you want something. Oh, waiter, waiter, we'd like two apple pies and three sticky toffee puddings, please, because we like those. Could you bring them, please? Or, waiter, there's a hair in my quiche. Can Can you get rid of it, please? Now, we can treat God in exactly the same way. We don't want him at our table, but we still want him handy just in case we need something. Oh, Lord, I'd really like some AirPods for Christmas, or a new job, or a raise at work. Could you sort that out for me? Or, 
oh Lord, I've got a complaint. I'm really not happy about this aspect of my life and I can't believe you've not actually changed it yet. Can you sort it out for me? And in no time at all with those kinds of examples, you can see how easy it is for us to treat God like a waiter and just want to use God. But that's not honoring God, that's despising God. And we saw from 1 Samuel 2 verse 30, a key text for unlocking the entirety of this book, that, that, that's, that those who despise God will be disdained. And so that's what God does with them in verses 4 to 10. He's disdaining people who are trying to use him and despise him. So verses 4 to 9 tell us that the ark was brought into the camp. Notice how the ark's described. Look with me at verse 4. It is the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now, all throughout this chapter, it's basically called the ark, but now it's described in elaborate terms, but it's very deliberate. Every word concerning the ark pulses with power. It is a strong, strong, strong indicator of the holiness of God that this ark should be treated with absolute reverence. Everything about it says this is not a box or a God to be mucked about with. But there's zero reverence for God here. How do we know that? Look who's carrying it. Hophni and Phinehas, the worthless sons of Eli, already under God's fuming wrath for showing contempt for God himself and abusing the people who were bringing their sacrifices. They didn't even know the Lord. And you've got to be asking at this point, I mean, where's Samuel? He doesn't actually come back into the picture until chapter 7, but surely the people of God having heard something of the word of God since Samuel was called by God, surely they should have in their defeat gone, we need to find Samuel. We need to hear from the Lord, but that's not what they do. The ark is brought into the camp, and notice how the text describes both sides reacting. When the ark arrives, verse 5, the Israelites roar so loudly, it's like 3.1 on the Richter scale. They're like Man U fans when Ronaldo re-signed. They thought, we're going to win everything. Sadly not. But the Philistines, on the other hand, well, the Philistines show more of a fear of the Lord than God's people do, don't they? Ironically, I mean, they've heard about this God. They've heard about the Exodus. They've heard about his very, God's very one-sided victory over the Egyptians. And they're like, whoa, this is going to be really hard. But look, though, they're, they're not sounding a retreat. They're actually very courageous here. They are stirring up strength. And what's so surprising after this elaborate pre-fight buildup is not only that the Philistines, when they go into battle, win hands down. It's that, verse 11, the ark was captured. <gasps> That's what you're meant to do when you read that. The ark of the Lord was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, 
died, just as God said they would in chapter 2, verse 25. The ark had been taken from Hophni and Phinehas' hands, and now it was in the hands of the enemy, the Philistines. In one single act, God shows Israel, you can't use God. In one single act, God judges Eli's house and at the same time sent them this very important lesson. God will not be used. And here's the important lesson for us, friends. You cannot use God. He doesn't exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. He won't be harnessed under our control And no amount of things that you do can make that happen. No amount of Bible reading, prayer, church attendance, or anything like that places the Lord Almighty under any kind of obligation to bless us or help us, or neither does it manipulate him to work in ways that we want. God will do what God will do, and he is utterly, astonishingly, unspeakably glorious for doing so. The great news for us, having said that, is that he does love to bless us. He does love to pour out his kindness on us and show us his love because that's a significant, major mark of his glory. But he does it because of who he is, not because of who we are. And we see from this passage, I hope it's really clear that he doesn't tolerate any dishonorable behavior in people who think that they can live without him in their day-to-day lives and still expect him to show up. Waiter, waiter, doesn't do that. I mean, even if you think about it, if your friend was being treated that way by a boyfriend, you'd be telling them, get rid of him, he's using you. Yet that's how we live at times, how I live at times. And we treat God like a mere vending machine rather than a loving Lord to relate to. You ever made any of those mistakes? Maybe you're making that mistake today. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for those who belittle God and think lightly of him, who don't quite have a significant grasp of his glory and his worth and so relate to him in those terms there is reconciliation for those who see him as he is and treat him as such but here is the warning let's not use god let's say sorry and serve him wholeheartedly instead now israel needed to learn that lesson because they god's old testament people were chosen to uh glorify God in their existence, but they did the opposite here when they belittle him, traipsing him in like some kind of lucky mascot. But God won't have it, and he sovereignly uses their actions to enact his judgment, as I said, on Eli's house. And even as the ark is captured, he's still working to preserve his glory, and he has very good reason to do so, because Eli's household had actually been doing something else. They had been robbing God of his glory. And they needed to be taught this lesson, and this is lesson number two in the text. You cannot steal God's glory. How had Eli and his sons been stealing glory? I say they've been stealing, robbing God of glory for years. 
Well, verse, let's walk through it. Verses 12 and following tell us how Eli and his daughter-in-law react to the news that the ark has been captured, and glory comes to the fore, though it's not obvious at first, right? Verses 12 and 13 tell us that a messenger wearing all the marks of mourning tells the city of Shiloh what's happened on the battlefields, and the city sent up a cry. Imagine the kind of loud mourning that you hear at or see on your TV at Middle Eastern funerals or something. It's like that, I guess. Then in verses 14 to 17, the messenger who seemingly has gone past Eli, who was waiting at the gate to the city, goes back to Eli, who was, of course, sitting there fearing for the faith of the ark. And the messenger just shares this bad news in four bare facts. Now, let's read verse 17 again. And see if you can figure out from the text which one hits him the hardest. Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Which one was it? You would expect it to be the third one. I mean, there can be no greater grief to a parent than the death of a child. Eli's lost both his sons, despite how worthless they were in God's sight. I'm sure he still loved them. But that's not what rocks him back in his chair here. Verse 18 says, It was the news that the ark had been captured that made him fall off his seat and die. And yet there's something strange in verse 18. The narrator, bizarrely it seems, makes note of Eli's wait. Did you see that? Verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell back upward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy. It's odd. Like the story would actually work perfectly well without this inclusion, which should always make you as a Bible reader ask the question, why? Why is it included? Well, here's why. It's because the writer is trying to show us that Eli's death is God's judgment for robbing God of his glory. Now, where do you get that from, you might say? Well, there's a wordplay going on um, in the original language in Hebrew, where the word for weight and the word for glory are variants of the same word. Glory in the Old Testament is actually expressed in terms of weightiness, of worth, of gravitas. So the glory of God, as it were, is his weightiness. But who is weighty in our passage? It's Eli. And why is Eli heavy? Well, the answer's in the text. Back in chapter 2, verse 29, God condemned Eli and his sons for getting fat on the portions of the sacrifice that by law belonged to God. So in short and maybe slightly crass terms, they stuck a fork in God's dinner and made themselves glorious by robbing God of his. See that? So their weight, his weight, in a sense, represented his rebellious ministry. So God underlines through Eli's death that you cannot rob God of his glory. 
Now, we can all be guilty of doing what Eli did in our own ways. We can rob God of his glory by taking credit for what is his and uh, acting like it's ours. Uh, We can rob God of glory when we happily receive from him without giving thanks to him. It gives a sense that we feel we're entitled or deserving. Or we rob God of his glory when we fail to talk about him in our conversations with each other or in conversations with those who haven't yet heard the gospel of the glory of Christ as 2 Corinthians 4 talks about it. But God will uphold his glory and will even discipline us, his children, to underline that. Significantly, most of the time, it's a very formative kind of correction where you read something in your Bible or hear something preached or talk about with a Christian friend and you realize, oh, well, I've actually been doing that. And it's just a gentle nudge from the Lord in that way. But other times, it can be more serious. But Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. Is a very important theological baseline for any of us, no matter what age we are, whether you're 15 or 55 or 95 or anywhere in between all that. Now, here's what we should do instead. Not, instead of stealing God's glory and not giving glory to him, we ought to glorify him with everything that we are and with everything that we have. As 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that goes for all of us. But rooted, folks, I want to say this to you guys, young people. This applies as much to you as it does to us oldies. And I think until you grasp this vital truth of living for God's glory, I don't think you'll ever truly understand what life is meant to be lived for. You exist to glorify him. That's, there's no doubt about that. The Bible is super clear on that. And you can give your life to living for God's glory and make that absolutely count for everything in eternity for him starting now. And I really think it's so important to grasp that because based on everything that comes your way through peer pressure, social media, teaching at school, all these different things, I want you to see that that when you grasp the glory of God and seek to live for the glory of God alone, it is the only antidote to the constant dissatisfaction and disappointment you'll find all around you. And even the only antidote to the constant dissatisfaction that you'll find when you live only for yourself. It will be a wasted and fruitless life. So glorify God with all that you are and have. Eli's family robbery was so serious in the end that God's judgment was to deprive Israel of his glory altogether, for a time anyway. And that's what we're to understand from this final bit in verses 90 to 22 with Phineas's wife, Eli's daughter-in-law. Look with me, verse 19. When she heard that the ark had been captured, 
she went into labor. Now, that's how traumatic this event was, even to people who showed little regard for God and his word at the best of times. No ark meant no presence, no protection, no atonement for anybody. Now, the pain was too much for her, though, in her labor, and everybody knew she wasn't going to make it. That's why you see the women attending her in verse 20, trying to comfort her. Don't despair. You've given birth to a son. Uh, a good friend of mine actually lost his wife soon after delivering their daughter. And she was, in a way, comforted in death by the safe delivery of their baby. But here's Phineas's wife refusing to be comforted. Why? Well, because the ark of God had been captured, which is because God's glory has departed. That's all she can think about. That's why with her dying breath in verse 21, she names her boy Ichabod, which means where is the weightiness? Where is the glory? So that every time this boy's name was uttered, Ichabod, come in for your tea, or Ichabod, did you wash your hair, or anything like that growing up, it forced the question. She, Phineas's wife, forced the question, where is the glory? Where is the glory? Now, where is the glory of God on that day? Well, there are two answers, really. The one answer is it's round Eli's waist because he's robbed God of it. But the second answer to that, the obvious answer from her little section is that it's gone. It has departed with God, as she makes clear in verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The glory, can you believe it, is in the hands and the temple, as we'll see next time, of idol worshipers. This is absolute disaster for Israel. And that's where we leave the story today. It will, this ark, the presence, the glory of God, come back, but not before God will make his glory known even among the Philistines and their idols, and not until Samuel properly comes back into play in chapter 7. But I'd like us to finish just by reflecting on how we answer her question. Where is the glory? Uh, we are not God's Old Testament people. We are God's New Testament people. We don't have a box that we parade around or follow or decorate or anything like that. That's fine. But the good news is we don't need to go looking for it. We don't need to go raiding for a lost ark because the glory of God is not tied to a box. It never was. In fact, it disappears after the Babylonians ransacked Israel and carry God's people off into exile. God lets them and lets them take it because he's a greater means of displaying his glory too. The first is in his son, Jesus, who in John 1:14 we read, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So where do we as New Testament Christians, and where do we say the glory is? We say, well, it is in Jesus Christ, 
Jesus who came to put God's glory on display in his sinless life, in his sin-bearing death, in his death-defeating resurrection. And he put his, God's weightiness, his incomparable worth on show. And that glory now sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, waiting for that moment, the right time to come back when all the earth will see his glory and confess it. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 tells us that when we look to Christ with eyes of faith, reading words like these, we can actually know God's glory personally. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So if you want to you're asking, where's the glory? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. How do you see that glory? By reading his words. Look to Jesus and behold the glory of God. But there's a second means that God employs in displaying this glory. And it's you. It's, it's his church. The body of Christ here on earth. I love John 17, Jesus' prayer to the Father before his death. In John 17, 22, Jesus prays to the Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In other words, our life together as a local church is meant to be a glorious reflection of the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of God that we've been singing about so far in our service. And that is one of the many very good reasons to place a much higher value on the local church than many of us do. And to realize at the same time that this glory is not just ours to reflect on or reflect to and from one another and to enjoy ourselves. It's ours to share so that others may join us in giving God the glory that he deserves. More people praising him is what God, this God of glory, absolutely deserves. And that's why using God as a mere waiter or robbing God of his glory by stealing it and claiming it for ourselves are mistakes that God's people today, us here as members of Charlotte Chapel, we cannot afford to make. Not when people's souls the majesty of Christ and the glory of God are at stake. Why don't we take a few minutes to pray about that? Let's bow our heads. Um, why don't you just in these next few seconds pray in your heart uh, personal prayers, either of thanksgiving or repentance or asking for help uh, based on what we've looked at tonight.
our Father, we give you glory and praise for the great salvation that you have given us so freely in your Son. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have enabled us to see Christ uh, through the knowledge of your words concerning him. And we praise you that you have called us to something so great, to a relationship with you, to know you and love you as friends at the same table, though we are not worthy. And indeed, you have called us to display this glory to one another and to the whole world. And in all of this, we ask for your help. Forgive us if we've ever, or if we are currently using you or stealing glory from you. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you that Christ died for sins such as these. And as we call on uh, you for grace, we ask for your help to live rightly. And these things we ask so that you get the glory and you get the praise. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.